is. I think it is now. Okay, hopefully it's ready for prime time. Okay, so in any case, so there are a number of, the, of shmuzim that deal with tshuva. There's also an entire series called the Chuva Boot Camp. You can access that by going to either the shmuz.com. Please note, you, you'll see my um, very fancy clip over here. I'm not quite, uh, again, not quite ready for prime time here. Um, didn't I brought a clip. I brought a microphone clip. I really came all prepared, but apparently it, um, I don't know, it just disappeared. In any case, so if you go to the Shmooz Live, you'll see the Shmooz site or the Shmooz podcast or the Shmooz app. You'll find on top there's a series. The series is a Chuva boot camp. I highly recommend that. That's a very good way to prepare for Yom Naroyim, for Rosh Hashanah, for Yom Kippur. There are also a number of Shmooz that deal directly with the issue of Chuva. We have the, um, you'll see a number, you can look, if you can just do a search on Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, you'll see, again, quite a number there. Um, and I highly recommend, because, again, it requires, you know, like anything in life, the more you prepare, the the more meaningful it'll be, and the more you'll be into it. So I highly recommend, if you're able to, to access that, please feel free to do that. Um, okay, and again, also, any questions, please feel free, uh, when we get to that, to ask. Um, okay, so... In just a minute, we're going to start. Um, I'm assuming it's still clear. If the camera shakes again, my apologies. This is really not the um, not quite prime time, but we're almost there. Um, okay, so in just a moment, we're going to start. Okay, let's begin. The Torah tells us that there are two divergent tracks that the Kleist will take. Either will be Elyon, Al-Kogoya, Aretz will be lofty, will be exalted, will be above all the other nations, or, Rahman the opposite. And in Kisovo, we have a very clear delineation of exactly what's going to happen if we do listen. If not, this is the second time we're told this. And the Torah is very clear. If you listen to the mitzvahs of Hashem, all the brachas will, will, will catch you. You'll almost be unable to avoid the brachas, and you'll be blessed in everything you do. On the opposite side, if you don't listen to the mitzvahs of Hashem, then all of the curses will chase you down and they'll catch you, all because you didn't listen to Hashem's words. And then the Torah tells us a pivotal point. What is it that's going to bring the oppression? What is it that's going to bring the devastation and the destruction? Because you didn't serve Hashem with joy and happiness when you had it all. You had abundance, you had prosperity. And despite all of that, you didn't serve Hashem b'simcha, therefore everything bad will come to you. And it's very clear that the pivotal point of the Jewish nation's existence is this single criteria. If you're going to serve Hashem b'simcha from from all of your excellent, from all that you have, it's going to be wonderful. If you're not going to serve Hashem B'Simcha, then it's going to be very, very rough, very, very bad. And again, this is the pivotal point, serving Hashem B'Simcha. Now we spent a number of shmuzim discussing why Simcha is the particular point there, but I believe what the Rabbeinu Chai explains to us is that this is the pivot because mitzvahs that one does with energy, with zeal, are done properly, and that will cause you to do more mitzvahs, <clears throat> mitzvahs done with, out, without energy, mitzvahs done with just a laziness, without a tremendous amount of energy in it, become very complacent, you become very accustomed to things, and you're either going to rise up or you're going to fall based on this single thing. Are you serving Hashem with 
zeal, with vim, with vigor, this is the pivot point. And Rabbeinu Machai says, from this Pesach we learn a very important lesson. And the Torah is teaching us that when you do mitzvahs, you have to do them with tremendous energy, with tremendous joy, with simcha, because again, this is the pivot point. Do them properly, and you'll grow mitzvah, goras mitzvah, one brings another. If you do them improperly, if you do them without energy, do them without zeal, you're going to go down level after level, and the essence of the Jewish peoples, either rise or fall, is based on this thing, doing the mitzvah b'simcha, and if Rabbeinu Chai stopped at that point, we wouldn't have much further to, to discuss. And but Rabbeinu Chai then explains to us exactly what he's referring to, and he gives us two examples. I want to show you two examples of mitzvahs that were done. They were done okay, but they weren't done b'simcha u'bekavana shlema. And what are the two quintessential examples? Number one is Ruvain. Ruvain went to save Yosef, but he sort of stopped short. Instead of actually saving Yosef, he told the brothers, let's not be the ones to actually kill him. Let's just leave him in the pit. Let's not kill him with our own hands. <clears throat> Explains Rabbeinu Chai, what Ruvain did was lacking. Had he really known, and he quotes the Medrash, <clears throat> had Ruvain known that Hashem would write about him, Yishma Ruvain, Yodam, that Ruvain saved him. Had Ruvain known that, that those words were written in the Chumash, he would have put him on his shoulders and marched him back to his father. But because Ruvain did that mitzvah without the proper energy, without the proper zeal, and therefore everything that happened to Yosef, he was sold to the, to the mitzvah, he spent all those years there, etc. And this is one example, explains Rabbein Rechai, of a person doing a mitzvah, but not doing it, but not in the best possible way, and the results were clear. But then Rabbeinu Chai brings a second case, another example of a mitzvah done, but not done with full simcha, without full kavana. And what is that? When Aaron goes out to meet his brother Moshe, Hashem said to Moshe, "You are to be the leader of the Jewish nation." Aaron had that position previously, and when Aaron went out to greet his brother, his samach belibo, he was filled with joy, but it wasn't the same. Had he known that the Torah was written about him, had Aaron known that the Torah is going to delineate that he went out with simcha, he wouldn't have just gone out with joy, he would have gone out with tambourines, with cymbals, he would have gone out dancing to meet his brother. But because he didn't have full energy, full simcha, he went out, it was true, he did it but it wasn't with the full energy, it wasn't with the full zeal. Explains Rabbi Nuchai, these are two examples of mitzvahs that are done, but not b'shlemas, not completely, and not b'simcha. And I'd like to ask the obvious question on this Rebbeinu B'chai, and that is, both of these questions are very, very difficult to understand. You see, Ruvain did something with tremendous understanding, with tremendous wisdom, and with a very clear logic behind what he did. The brothers sat as a Beisden, and they determined that Yosef was attempting to basically to kill them. They felt that everything that Yosef could find wrong with the brothers, he brought to the father, Yaakov, to tell him. And it was clear that to the brothers that Yosef was attempting to get Yaakov to curse them because apparently they assumed that Yosef wanted to be the sole inheritor instead of 12 shvatim and one shevet. And as a Beisden, they sat down in Paskin that Yosef is Chayiv Misa. Now, Ruvain understood that it wasn't true. And Ruvain attempted to convince them. 
And he went through various arguments, and he said, it's not true, it's not right, it's not true, and he saw that it wouldn't work. The Ramban explains that after attempt after attempt, he realized he would not be able to save Yosef. So the only thing he did was, he said, wait, let me at least try something. He said to the brothers, okay, listen, let's at least not kill him with our own hands. Let's leave him in the pit, and whatever happens to him happens to him. The Ishmaelim take him, that's fine, but let's not kill him with our hands. Explains the Ramban, the reason why Ruvain did that was very clear, because he assumed that if he asked for anything more, he would never succeed. Ruvain knew that the brothers felt that Yosef was a murderer, and Ruvain understood that after trial after trial, attempt after attempt, to get the brothers to actually allow Yosef to live, he wouldn't succeed. Therefore, he came up with this idea, this subterfuge, leave him to let us not be the ones to kill him, be a daim, let the Ishmaelim take him. But here's the problem. He had all the right kavana, and he had tremendous energy in the mitzvah, and he risked his life. What does Rabbeinu Machai mean But when he says that had Ruvain had full simcha, had full energy, he would have brought him on his shoulders to his father? It's not true. He calculated, he planned, he realized this was as much as he could do. If he tried to do more, he would gain nothing. Not only that, it might backfire altogether. At least this way he could save Yosef's life. So the question is, what does Rabbein Rechaim mean? But if this case isn't difficult enough, let's focus on the other one with Moshe Rabbeinu and Aaron. For years and years, literally decades, Aaron Akoin was the Shleich Hashem. He was the Novi. And whenever Hashem wanted to speak to the Jewish nation, he spoke to Aaron and delivered the message. Moshe Rabbeinu spent 60 years in Midian. Moshe hadn't seen his brother in decades. Hashem says to Moshe, I want you to be the leader of the Jewish nation. And Moshe Rabbeinu says, no, it's not right. My brother is three years older. He's the Bukhar. He's been the one who's the <coughs> shliach up until now. He should be the one to take the Jewish nation out of Mitzrayim. Hashem says, no. Moshe says, yes. No, yes. For six days, and for six days, Moshe Rabbeinu fought because he said, I don't want to take that cover from my brother. And what Hashem said to Moshe is, you're mistaken. Any normal person would feel the slight. Any regular person would feel the position was taken from them. But this is Aaron. And I'm going to show you, Hashem says, when you go out to meet Aaron, he's going to have joy in his heart. Kachava, Moshe Rabbeinu goes to meet Aaron. Aaron comes out to greet him. He was joy-filled in his heart. And Rashi explains to us, because of that, Aaron was zochet to have the chosh and mishpat on his heart, since he had such a pure heart. It was only appropriate that he should be the Kohen Gadol, because that is the pure heart that the Jewish nation needs for its atonement. So here's the problem. Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar is telling us that, yes, Aaron did it, but not with kavanah shlema, not besimcha. That's not true. The Torah is telling us, v'rav v'samach belibo. And not only that, Hashem says, look, Moshe, I'm going to show you. He's joyful. Says Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar, had he known that the Torah was going to write about him, v'rav v'samach he would have meet him with tambourines and with, with, with symbols. I think Aaron did very, very well. He mastered this need for honor that all of us get caught up in. He reached the pinnacle of, of other sentiness, giving up willingly that position to his brother with Rav Samach Blivo. What does Rabbeinu Bachai mean that had he known that the Torah would write about him, that he was happy, he would have had more energy, more zeal, he would have met him with tupim and mochalos, with cymbals and tambourines? It sounds very difficult to understand. So question number one is, how do we understand what Rabbeinu Chai is teaching us about Ruvain? 
And number two, how do we understand what he's teaching us about Aaron? And to understand the answer to these questions, we have to focus a little bit back on history and as mankind has lived for many, many millennium. We live in times that are unprecedented in terms of luxuries, in terms of access, in terms of tremendous conveniences. Throughout history, this isn't the way things were. If you look back on basic history, the way mankind lived was subsistence farming, the basic way that society worked was people earned a living, meaning to say they went into the fields, they brought in enough wheat to make their bread, the women sewed their own clothing, and people lived in a very, very simple manner. What we enjoy today are luxuries and comforts that are unprecedented in history. And if you look historically as to what were the pivot points, there were probably two main changes. In 1452, the printing press was invented. Until that point, there was very, very little information that mankind could spread one to another. If someone understood a language, if someone understood an element of science, he might have been able to teach a student or two. But the idea of writing down books was almost unheard of. The average house in Europe did not own a single book. Why? Because all books were written by hand, very, very expensive. You needed a scribe. And any information that mankind had was kept tremendously locked into a small circle of people. Very wealthy people had a scroll. A few scribes maybe would write them scrolls. Maybe a university had a few of these scrolls. But by and large, information was kept tremendously enclosed, and people understood very, very little. With the invention of the printing press, suddenly, with a very, very inexpensive manner, someone could present information, they could print out books, people could buy it, and very quickly, mankind's understanding of much of natural science, much of history, exploded. And if the printing press was one of the major changes in history, in terms of conveniences, in terms of wealth, in terms of property ownership, and probably the revolutionary point was the Industrial Revolution, meaning what the printing press brought to the world in terms of information, the Industrial Revolution brought to mankind in terms of goods. Up until that point, again, basically, subsistence farming was the way people worked. You worked the field for your own goods. If you needed a chair, you basically you would chop the wood and shape the chair. Maybe if you had a little extra money because you sold some corn, you could buy a table, you could buy a chair. But the Industrial Revolution changed that all. Suddenly, mankind began forming in cities. Factories began forming. These factories would produce mass-produced products so that instead of one man making a table, a factory would produce hundreds and hundreds of tables, and they would sell them, and suddenly the way mankind exchanged goods changed in a radical way. However, the Industrial Revolution required energy, because at the end of the day, if you want to make tables, if you want to make chairs, if you want to make various household equipment, you need energy to pull it. The cow has only so much strength, the horse is only so strong, and mankind began looking for different sources, and finally, the pivot point was when the steam engine was invented. The steam engine in 1769, James Watts patented a particular version of the steam engine. 
and suddenly we had the power source for the Industrial Revolution. Factories were there already, but instead of having to be fueled by either wind or water, suddenly wood, coal could be burnt, and steam, water would be heated up, the steam would be would be explode from there, and the steam was now used as a power source for the Industrial Revolution. But it's very interesting to note that people at the time were not ready for it. The first steam engine-powered locomotive, there were many, many doctors who said things like, don't dare go on it, it's going to reach speeds that it's impossible to breathe. It was so fast, it was so strong, nothing like it had been seen before. You could ride on a horse at 30 miles an hour, 35 miles an hour, but, in, but a locomotive traveling on rails powered by steam was so powerful and moved so quickly that mankind had never seen anything like it. And again, the Industrial Revolution was now in full energy because the steam engine was now the power source. But here's the point. Steam is water. Water heated up to 212 degrees changes state. Instead of being a liquid, it turns into a gas. But when it turns into a gas, it's such a powerful expansion. And if you contain that, it's going to push with such energy that it can take an entire locomotive and drive it down the rails at 45 miles an hour, 50 miles an hour, because steam at 212 degrees has a tremendous expansive property to it and has tremendous energy. That same water at 211 degrees is not going to move a thing. The difference between heating water to 211 and 212 degrees is a difference between the Industrial Revolution and nothing. But if you think about it, that increase is so minuscule. At 211 degrees, nothing happens. At 212 degrees, suddenly the steam starts emitting, and suddenly you can power machines, and you can power a locomotive, but it's only one degree of difference. And if you think about it, it's less than half of 1% of difference. And you may have a sense of what's the big deal. 211, 212, you're going to tell me I can move an entire locomotive carrying thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of pounds of goods only if the water hits 212 degrees and 211 nothing happens? And the answer is exactly. At 212 degrees, everything happens. At 211, nothing happens. And it's less than a half of a percent difference in heat, but that difference makes all the difference in the world. And I heard my Rebbe Roshiva explain this medrash exactly that way. Would you like to know what Ruvain did? Ruvain saw that the brothers were going to literally kill Yosef. And he realized that they were wrong. And he stood up with tremendous danger to himself, with tremendous energy, but he was at 211 degrees. Because it was at 211 degrees, he saw there was no way he could actually convince them. There was no way that he could actually really make them stop. Says Rabbi Nochai, had he known that the Torah was going to write about him, and that Ruvain saved Yosef, he would have put Yosef on his shoulders and walked him back to his father. There would have been another amount of energy, another tremendous amount of zeal, and the difference between him and what he did one degree of difference. He was at 211. Had he been at 212, he would have seen the opening. He would have seen a way to convince them. The reason why he assumed he couldn't possibly convince them was because he was pretty much motivated, pretty driven, but not quite there. And that small minor difference between 211 degrees and 212 degrees is exactly why 
Ruvain did very well. He did a tremendous mitzvah. In a sense, he saved Yosef's life. But had he been totally besimcha, with total zeal, with total energy, he would have seen the opening. He would have seen that he could convince the brothers. And in fact, he would have put Yosef on his shoulders and walked him back to his father. And this is a concept, I believe, that we see many, many times in life. The difference between being on fire and not is the difference between agony of defeat and the victory. And if you'd like to see a classic example of this, look no further than competitive sports. The Olympic gold medal is often won by the slightest, slightest sliver of time. If you look typically in men's freestyle swimming, 200 meter, it was won by 1.42 seconds. The women's 200 meter was won by 0.59 seconds. The men's 800 meter running was won by 0.71 seconds. We're talking such slivers of time that often you can't even see the difference. There are many, many races where they seem to touch the pad at the very same moment, and it's only with computerized clocks and with looking afterwards at the videotapes, only then can they see the difference because it's slivers of time. But the difference between gold and bronze or maybe totally not winning anything is often a tiny little bit. And the margin of victory is very, very slim. I'll share with you another example of this. The Daytona 500, which in much of the country is a very popular race, 500-mile race, and you're talking professional race car drivers are running 200 laps. Now, you have to understand, the winner takes all. It's a million-dollar prize, and the Daytona 500 is considered one of the most prestigious races, certainly in this country, and it's something that people tune into and something that professional drivers focus on for their entire career. In the past 10 years, the Daytona 500 has won by, been won by an average of 1.54 seconds, a second and a half. But I want to explain to you what that means. 500 miles, and they're racing at breakneck speed, racing as fast as they can, and for the past 10 years, the race is won on average by one and a half seconds. Now, I've seen films of this, and the, you can see the two cars coming, racing right after 500 miles. They're coming to the finish line. And to my eye, it looked exactly like a tie. It looked like they both hit that line at the same time. In 2007, the Daytona 500 was won by two one-hundredths of a second. And the difference between gold and not, success and not, is often measured with such small, minuscule amounts but that is one of the great secrets of life. That oftentimes it just takes that extra bit of energy, that extra bit of zeal, the difference between 211 degrees and 212 degrees, and I believe that's exactly what happened to Ruvain. Ruvain was tremendously motivated. He recognized that he's dealing with his brother's life. He recognized that he's dealing with a situation where if he doesn't succeed, his brothers are going to kill Yosef. He understood the gravity of the situation but he didn't have full motivation, didn't have full simcha. Had he known that the Torah was going to write about him, that he saved Yosef, he would have literally seen the opening. He wouldn't have begged them to sort of just let the, the Ishmaelim take them. He would have taken Yosef on his shoulders. He would have seen the opening. That extra amount of energy would have driven him. He would have seen it, and he would have had a tremendously different outcome. And I believe that's the answer to why Ruvain, yes, reached a very great level, but not quite there. But here's the problem. That does explain to us, Ruvain, 
but it doesn't help us understand Aaron Akoin. Because Aaron Akoin went out to meet his brother with tremendous joy. Remember, Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar said to us that mitzvahs have to be done besimcha or bishlemus. Why? Because look what happened to Aaron. Aaron went out to greet his brother, but had he known that the Torah was going to write about him and that he greeted him with joy and happiness, he would have come out with tupim machalas, he would have come out with tambourines and cymbals. Aaron Akoin reached such happiness that he was granted the Chosha Mishpah. What was lacking there? What was Rabbeinu Chai's point there? And what could Aaron HaKoyin have done differently? And to understand this second step, I think we need to take another little step back and understand things. There are different scales of measure that are used for measuring different types of things. If you buy potatoes, you use one type of scales. If you're using a scale to measure diamonds, you're obviously going to use a very different type of scale because it's measured in very different increments and very different levels of precision. In the year 2000, the Bear Company released their Millennium Star Diamond. This was the ultimate diamond, and this was an incredible diamond. I've seen pictures of it. I don't study diamonds much, but it literally takes your breath away. It's magnificent. The Millennium Star Diamond weighs 203 carats. Now, you may say to me, 203 carats? How could anyone even lift it? I mean, uh, if a woman has a carat ring, that's a fine diamond. A two-carat ring is, is a big, big stone. What, is, what in the world are you going to do with a 203-carat diamond? But the interesting point is that 203 carats actually weighs about an ounce and a half. You see, a carat is one-fifth of a gram. They're 28 grams an ounce. So somewhere around 150 carats to an ounce. But this diamond, the Millennium Star, has 203 carats of almost flawless internally and externally flawless diamond. They try to give it a value. They don't really have a value. It really is priceless. But they value it at somewhere around $500,000 per carat, meaning to say it's worth a king's ransom. Now, when they first discovered the rough diamond, they discovered it at 700-odd carats. And here's what happened. What happened was they hired the Steinmetz group to cut the diamond because in the rough, it was a huge, huge chunk of stone, but it was worthless because it was a very rough stone. The Steinmetz group spent three years. They made incredible amounts of models of it, and they studied it very carefully. They studied it under microscopic conditions in special laboratories with absolute complete purity without any impurities whatsoever and the actual cut was done after three years of study and it was done by laser the story is told that the person actually headed up the cutting and he pressed the button to actually release the laser and cut it and he saw a 200 carat almost perfect diamond the story is told he passed out because the simple reality is that that rough at 700 carats could have been nothing or it could have become the ultimate millennium diamond. But you see, here's the point. When you measure potatoes, if you're off by a tenth of an ounce, what's the big deal? When you're measuring diamonds, if a carat is less than a hundredth of an ounce, the difference of a hundredth of an ounce is a king's ransom. Because a one carat, two carat, five carat, ten carat diamond is measured with the most tiny, tiny, small incremental differences. 
And I believe that's exactly the answer to Aaron Cohen. You see, when Hashem put us on this planet, Hashem put us on the planet and gave us the opportunity to do things that we rarely understand. We were given the opportunity to acquire our Olam Haba, to basically acquire that which is going to keep us for eternity. But you see, eternity is a very long time. And Hashem gave us the ability to accomplish things that are beyond our understanding. But the precision that one has to have in those actions are tremendously demanding. Because when you're dealing with spiritual dimensions, you're dealing with cutting diamonds, you're dealing with things that are well beyond the norm. We think in terms of potatoes. What's the big deal? An ounce, a half an ounce, quarter of an ounce. What difference does it make? And the truth is, you're right. In most things that we human beings are involved in, the minutiae don't really matter. But when you're involved with ruchnias, when you're involved with spirituality, it's the tiny, tiny differences that make all the difference. Why? Because you're dealing with things that are so powerful, so potent, well beyond the human understanding. If you have a perfect pair of tefillin, but there's only one flaw in it, the letter, one letter is cracked, the tefillin apostle. You have an entire Sefer Torah, and one crackless, so, but, but the rest of the Torah is fine. According to most Rishonim, you're not even Yotze Kriyas the Torah with that Sefer Torah, and certainly not Yotze in the midst of owning a Sefer Torah. But it's one small part. What's the big deal? And the answer is in most things that we do in the physical world, it's not a big deal. But when you're dealing with Ruchnias, when you're dealing with spiritual elements, it's a tiny, tiny minutia that make all the difference. Why? Because you're dealing with other world things. You're dealing with things that are way, way above this world, and things that change the upper worlds, things that last for eternity, and I believe that's exactly the answer to Aaron Cohen. Aaron reached a tremendously great level. He went out to greet his brother with simple, with joy in his heart. And it's incredible. If any other human being had reached that level, amazing. But Aaron could have done more. Had he known that the Torah was going to write about him, and that he met his brother with simple, with joy, he would have had another level, another immense amount of joy, another amount of zeal, and that difference would have made a difference. What's the difference? The difference is when you're cutting potatoes, it won't make a difference, but when you're dealing with fine, fine differences, when you're dealing with ruchnias, when you're dealing with spirituality, it's a tiny minutia that make all the difference because you're dealing with things of a totally different quality, of a totally different currency. It's true that most of what we do and most of the way we think is in very simple terms, and that every once in a while we get an eye glimpse as to the impact, the power, and the world of spirituality that we're allowed to deal with. And with that being said, I'd like to share with you an interesting observation. If you would like to go into business, I have a very good business to recommend. And that is, what I recommend you do is buy and sell used exercise equipment. Now, why do I recommend that business? Because most people get that sort of high and they say, that's it, I'm going to start exercising. And they buy a very expensive piece of equipment, whether it be the Nautilus, whether it be the treadmill, whether it be the elliptical. They spend a lot of money, and no sooner do they get that piece of equipment into their house, than it very quickly sits there, and within a a week or two, a month or three, it becomes a clothes hanger. They put clothes on it, and it sits there. So if you want to go into a good business, what you do is you buy used exercise equipment because it's barely used, resell it at a great discount, and you'll find yourself an unending stream of customers, 
is people get motivated, they spend a lot of money on the equipment, they don't use it, then you can buy it back, resell it, resell it, resell it. Because here's the point. Most people don't succeed at exercising. But you know why? Because for any plan to really succeed, there are three parts. There's number one desire. I want to get in shape. I want to lose weight. I want to be healthier, whatever it may be. That's one part. The second part is commitment. I have to be committed to it. I'm going to get on that treadmill three times a week and for 35 minutes every time I'll be there. And most people are pretty good when it comes to desire and when it comes to commitment. But there's a third part to any plan, and this is why most exercise plans fail, and that is something called persistence. You see, persistence is what takes over when your commitment wanes. You see, originally I have this tremendous desire. I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to get in shape, whatever my desire is. And I make a commitment. I really firmly make up in my mind, I'm going to do it. And that lasts for a week or two. And, but then I get up and I'm tired and I'm in a bad mood or whatever it may be. And it's that ability to remain persistent, to remain at it, even after the desire is gone, even after that sense of commitment is gone, that's the difference between failure and success. And you see, the point is that keeping that at 212 degrees throughout life is one of the keys to success in any endeavor in life. If you find me a human being who succeeded in any endeavor, I guarantee they set lofty goals, they have a tremendous desire, and they have a commitment to it, but it's that third element, the persistence, staying at it, sticking to it, even once the commitment wanes, even once the desire stops being as strong, the ability to stick to it is the difference between success and failure. And I'd like to share with you one very important observation for life. I am a big fan of reading inspirational material. It's something that's very important. I try to read about athletes. I try to read about inventors or people who reach greatness because when you read something, it becomes inspiring. And I find it for myself, I find it for many people very, very powerful. It's very, very inspirational, and it's very, very helpful. However, there's a very real problem with inspiration. And I think it was Zig Ziglar who said it, inspiration is a little bit like showering. It wears off, and that's why I recommend doing it every day. You see, if you get inspired, that's great. I'm inspired. Let's go. But the problem with inspiration is it leaves you very quickly. And the problem is most of us don't have the persistence to really remain committed to something after we no longer need that, no longer feel that desire. And one of the great secrets in life is learning how to remain constantly inspired. But the only way to do that is to constantly inspire yourself. And the only way really to do that in our world is by learning Musr. And I'd like to share with you, I remember these words from my Rebbe, Roshiva Zatzal said them again and again and again. I cannot tell you how many times Roshiva Zatzal would say, you have to learn Musr every day. Every day you have to learn Musr, at least 20 minutes, at least 20, you have to learn it. And for most of my adult life, I learned Musr on a regular basis, at least 20 minutes, oftentimes far more than that. But I'd like to share with you an interesting point. When I was a high school Rebbe, there was a certain point when I was very involved in learning, very involved in teaching. But for whatever reason, I stopped learning a daily Musa Seder. It wasn't for a long time. It was for a few months. But for whatever reason, I was busy. I did different Siddharam. I didn't have time. So I stopped learning Musa Seder. And I looked back and I realized I made the worst decisions in my life during that time period. During that time period, I was, I wouldn't say I'm a totally different person, but it wasn't the same. 
because being inspired requires constant energizing, constantly keeping at it. And if you're not learning Musr on a regular basis, if you're not constantly re-inspiring yourself, what happens is it gets a little dry, it gets a little... and you lose that energy. And if you're at 211 degrees, you have the same hashkafas, you have the same outlook on life, but not that energy, not that drive. And what happens is you're not the same person. And the reason why I say that is because I oftentimes hear people say things like, you know, the shmuz, when I first started listening to shmuz, it was great, it was, it was so inspiring, it was, but like, to be honest with you, I mean, you know, it's becoming a little bit old, you know, uh, I was once, there was a fellow who used to drive me into Brooklyn every, every week, he was obviously committed to shmuz, he would drive me once a week, and at a certain point he said to me, you know, to be honest with you, the shmuz is it's just not doing it for me anymore. And I realize why, because he's right. It's all the same stuff. It's all about growing and changing and maybe anger and humility or how to look at life or marriage or money evolution. I mean, now granted, the sources are from science and history, biographies, life observation. But at the end of the day, it's just the same old stuff, how to change, how to grow, and how to get inspired. But you see, that's exactly the point. It's the ability to constantly be inspired and the ability to say to yourself, I need this inspiration. And I'm going to get myself inspired, whether it be by reading a Muslim Seder, whether it be by reading biographies of Gdolim, whether it be by listening to a Muslim Shmuz. But the point is, a person needs constant inspiration, constant energizing, because it's only when you get to 212 degrees that you're really powerful, but you got to keep that. And I think as we approach Elul in a very serious way, and there's not that much time left to Yom Kippur to, till I think it's time to really focus on this concept. One of the great accomplishments of Elul, one of the great accomplishments of Roshan and Yom Kippur is the ability to get re-inspired, to recognize that I'm here for a few short years, and to recognize that I have great goals, and to ask myself, how am I doing? How am I doing at this thing called life? And to reinvigorate yourself, re-inspire yourself, but you need material, you need books, you need Muslim, you need things, and you have to go back there and say, I have to get re-inspired. And you have to prepare, and you have to use your time, and you have to listen to things and get involved in things that work. If the Muslims form themselves work, do it. If not, listen to speeches. If you don't know who to listen to, you go to Torah anytime, and you can find hundreds and hundreds of very inspiring speakers, but you have to do it on a regular basis. I think this Rabbeinu B'chai is teaching us a tremendous concept. As great as Ruvain was, and as much as he endangered his own life to save his brother, he was only at 211 degrees. Had he really been fully on fire, he would have seen, no, I can convince them. I can put Yosef on my shoulders and march him back to my father, but he wasn't quite there. Yes, he was tremendously motivated, but he was 211. The difference between 211 degrees and 212 degrees is the difference between being on fire and being that steam engine, that tremendously, tremendously powerful, or the opposite. And I think what we see from Aaron Cohen is something very similar. Aaron Cohen had reached a tremendous level of other-centeredness, a tremendous level of being dedicated to other people, but he wasn't quite there. Had he known that the Torah was going to write about him, had he went out to greet his brother with joy and happiness, he would have had even more energy, but what difference would that have made? The difference would be only when you're dealing with spirituality. When you're dealing with things in Ruchnias, tiny little differences make a tremendous difference. Because much like when you cut a diamond, if you're off a little bit when you cut a salami, nobody really cares. If your slices are too thin or too thick, no one's going to notice. 
But if you're cutting diamonds, it's a whole different ball game. And when you're measuring diamonds and you're weighing diamonds, you're dealing with a totally different currency, a totally different scale. And I think that's exactly what Rabbeinu Chai is teaching us. Because you didn't serve Hashem with tremendous joy, with tremendous simcha, that's why, and that's what's lacking. What's the difference between the Jewish nation being exalted and lofty, or the opposite? This difference. 212 degrees or 211, it powers a steam locomotive, it powers ruchnius, and it's the difference between the Jewish nation rising or falling, and certainly in our own life, it's critically the difference. And I'd like to finish with one last observation. And that is, the Rabbeinu Chai finishes with one point. He says, what do we do nowadays? It's true that Aaron Cohen, had he known the Torah was going to write about him, he would have been more motivated. Ruvain is the same. But what do we do nowadays? So he quotes the message that says, nowadays we have to know that Mashiach and Hashem write it down in every single activity of our life is going to be played and revisited. And I believe what Rabbeinu Chai is teaching us is one of the great motivational forces in existence. And that is understanding that who I am is based on what I shape myself into now. For eternity, my decisions, my actions, my words, what I do, how I do it, will be played over and over and over. Because in a based in Shamala, everything I do is written down. And if you'd like to really grow, I have a very simple exercise. Take that little device that maybe we shouldn't have called the iPhone or the Android and put it on video. And video yourself for a little while. Maybe video yourself while you're dominating. Maybe video yourself while you're learning. And play back that video. And ask yourself one key critical question. Is that all I got? Is that dominating that I dominated? Was I really speaking to Hashem? Was I learning with real, real Hislavas? When I did that act of chesed, very nice I did it, but did I really care? Did I move my heart? And if you actually videotape yourself and you then watch it, you may discover that there's a lot more that you can do. And this is something that we have to think about because again, as we approach Rosh Hashanah and come close to Yom Kippur, these are the biggest gains we could accomplish. This is what real tshuva is about, realigning myself, realigning my life, setting my goals again to be clearer, to be loftier, to be higher and then planning how to reach them. And with that, I'd like to open the floor to questions. Um, I apologize. I hope the sound and, what do you call it, sound and video is clear, because again, I am I'm not at home, and this is a, um, a little bit of an interesting situation. So, But um, I hope it was clear enough. In any case, I'd like to open the floor now to questions. Please feel free to raise your hand if you have questions. I'll call on you. If you're shy, you can type the question in. But uh, again, if you're brave, you can certainly raise your hand if you have questions on Nishmu's, on Chuv in general, or other topics, please feel free to ask. Um, you can please feel free to, again, if you want, you can raise your hand. If you have questions, you can type them in. If you don't have questions on Nishmu's or any other Shmuz, that's also okay. Um, okay, here's an interesting question. What Musa books do you recommend as Masul Sharm seems a little heavy after the first two chapters? Thank you. Okay, so let me comment. I think you said it very well. Masil Shisharim is the finest Musa Sefer maybe ever written. Rabbi Salsalanta says, of all the Musa Sefer are valuable, but the best of the best by far is Masil Sharm. And to be honest with you, I've spent now decades, when I say decades, I mean decades and decades, learning Masil Shisharim. And I keep going back to it, I keep returning to it, 
And there are very few svarim that are anywhere near as powerful. But here's the problem. Most of the time, or for most people, the Musa Sefer is broken. It doesn't work. I open a book, I look at a book, it looks at me, and nothing happens. So, <clears throat> what are you going to do? So I have a little recommendation. My first recommendation is you go to theshmuz.com and you find Life 101. Life 101 is 16 shurim that I gave on the first parak Musil Sharm. And then you get a little braver after you've done that, and you look for the um, Musavad. The Musavad, I went through the first four Prakim of Sharm, and I, I spent, I think it was about 31 shurim on that. <clears throat> you look for that. If you can't find it on the site, because it may not be on the site, send me an email to Rebbe at theshmuz.com, R-E-B-B-E at theshmuz.com. And I guarantee, if you listen to this, I guarantee you're going to find a tremendous amount of inspiration of real-life stuff, because again... The Mesut Sharma is, is the essence. It's the most incredibly clear, delineated Musa Sefer there. Again, the problem is oftentimes it's not, it doesn't speak in our language. By the way, another recommendation I have is Stop Surviving, Start Living. If you haven't seen that book, that, I, I spent a fortune of time. I spent, after I really had, after learning Mesut Sharma for probably 30 years, I spent eight months just writing through that book. And it's on the, you can go on the Shmuz, uh, the Shmuz site, if, just remember it's spelled T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com, or you can go on Amazon and look for Stop Surviving, Start Living. It's the first Parakam Sharm, what I call, I like to call it written in the 21st century language. Um, and I, I think it's a very, very powerful book. But here's the great secret. If you read through that book and close it, I'm sorry, you missed the point. I'm going to explain to you what I mean. When I wrote that book, I wrote each chapter ten times. When I say ten times, I mean I wrote each chapter. I wrote it, edited it, re-edited it, re-edited it. Each chapter I wrote ten times. There's one chapter where I begin, where I'm describing what, what it's like at my funeral when I'm put in the ground. And on the tenth time when I was writing it for the final version, I, I was crying. There were tears in my eyes. I said, oh, this is good. I got it. But wait a minute. I don't understand. First of all, why are you crying? But more than that, you, you, you learned this again and again and again for 30 years, 35, 40 years maybe by now. And you spoke about it, and you probably said that schmooze hundreds of times. Why are you doing it again? And I returned to Mr. Sharm again and again and again for one reason. Because inspiration requires constant inspiration. You have to constantly review it, constantly come back to it. And because things that you knew yesterday, you might still know today, but the inspiration, the drive, that being at 212 degrees requires constant new invigoration, constant new increase. So the bottom line is you got to find things that work. Um, again, I highly recommend Musa 101. You go to the Shmooz site or you go to the uh, podcast or you go to the Shmooz app and look for Life 101. That's the first pair of Musa Sharm. If you, once you've done that, send me an email and I'll send you a link to the Musavad, that's again 31 Shurim, that's on the first four Prakam. You look at the Stop Surviving, Start Living. If that doesn't keep you till Yom Kippur, doesn't keep you busy, I don't know what to tell you, but um, but that would be my recommendation. So long and short of it is, you got to find what works, and you got to stick to it, and you got to come back to it again and again and again. Um, right, and that's really, that's really the point. Okay, please feel free to raise your hand if you have questions. I'll gladly take questions if you have. Um, um, you may raise your hand if you're shy you could type them in if you don't have questions it's also okay um, my internet might hopefully will be stay on for a little bit longer um, but I'm not really sure 
But um, in any case, again, I highly recommend that you, um, especially as we get closer to Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, you go to the Shmuel's site and you'll find the Tshuva Boot Camp. That's a very, very recommended uh, series. It's, a, I think, it's three or four Shurim on Tshuva. There are a number of Shmuzim on Rosh Hashanah, on Yom Kippur. And you have to prepare. If you spend time ahead of time, ahead of Rosh Hashanah, ahead of Yom Kippur, and really get into it and really learn the Muslim and listen to different shiurim, etc. What you'll find is you walk in with a very different experience. But if you're going to wait till the day of or whatever, it's going to be very difficult to get inspired, very difficult to be motivated. So please avail yourself of that. Again, I highly recommend the um, the Life 101. I think it's the perfect time to listen to it. But again, there are many shmuzim on Rosh Hashanah, many on Yom Kippur. Um, again, the Tshuva Boot Camp. And uh, also, again, please... Avail yourself of stop surviving, start living because I think it's a great, uh, it's a great book. I think. Well, again, I'm a little bit biased over here. I have to admit, but but again, I think it's it's it has been very well received. And more than anything, it's really just a explanation of the missiles charm. So it's, you know, I, I think it's very very important, very valuable. Um, okay, so I want to thank you all for joining, and I wish you a good event. Your Hashem will be on uh, next Thursday. Hashem. Um, and I hope to see you there. I wish you a good Shabbos and much, much aslacha. Thank you.